Welcome to the Food Intelligence Podcast presented by TasteWise. My name is Ron, and today we're talking about our 2022 trend predictions for the UK. So in previous two episodes, we talked about our trend predictions, um, mainly focused on the US, even though we did spend quite a bit of time talking about food tourism and kind of... uh, stuff that went a bit uh, beyond the U.S. as well. But today we're specifically talking about U.K. audiences. Um, As always, with me is Miriam, who did all the hard work and research putting all this content together. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. Miriam, uh, today we're talking specifically about the UK trends. Um, when you're putting together research specifically that is focused on um, on one region or another, um, so when we say that we're focusing on the UK, does that mean that we're mostly looking at like social media because we're mostly looking at uh, at the consumers themselves, or do recipes and other data sources play into this as well? That's a great question. Um, So that actually calls to mind a larger question, I think, which is how we identify and evaluate a trend at large. Um, But this is certainly true also for geographic trends. Uh, So definitely social media, um, which is really just a proxy for consumer behavior, right, and consumer perception, um, is kind of the kingpin of what we're looking at. Um, But of course, all of these trends are also validated within uh, food service trends, restaurant trends, and home cooking trends on recipes. So uh, a little bit of a triple whammy there, but uh, definitely social media is kind of the primary um, trendsetter that we're looking at for the UK. Awesome. So uh, we're going to be going through our um, top seven trends for uh, 2022, the ones that we have seen grow over the past year. Um, Obviously, uh, the pandemic has impacted probably if uh, maybe not all, but most of these. Um, Something very consistent that we're seeing is that there are a lot of trends that maybe were more obscure or even non-existent a couple of years ago that have sort of slingshotted into the mainstream. And we're always looking for things that we think are going to stick around and continue growing. Uh, One of the interesting things to look uh, look at is not always just the trends that are um, already very well penetrated in a market, but ones that show significant growth and are also showing very rapid growth. So the disclaimer we always give is that if something, if we're, for example, looking at uh, social mentions or amounts of recipes and interactions, we're not really looking at anything that you know went from zero to five, and then we can say, hey, it grew, you know, five hundred percent or or whatever. Exactly, yeah. We're really looking at uh, things that already had some sort of significant uh, database to work with, like a, a good starting point, um, and have continued to show. Um, sustainable growth um, ever ever since then. Uh, we're going to try to get through all of them. Let's see how it goes. Before we get started, I also want to remind everybody that this report is going to be uh, launching for your perusal, perusal uh, at some point in the next couple of days here. So if anything we don't get to today in the course of our podcast episode, you're welcome to check out in its fully written form. Um, I also want to give a really big shout out to Naomi on our team and Mayrav, who um, helped in a huge way. Um, we could even say that I helped them in this report. They were absolutely crucial um, in figuring out uh, these trends. And something that I really love about uh, our team at large, but especially these two uh, colleagues of ours, is that they are incredibly, um, in addition to be just being incredibly intelligent and smart and wise people, that they also um, are really 
precise with data. They're incredible data scientists and data analysts. Um, so really proud to offer these trends to you all because I know from seeing it firsthand how incredibly well-researched um, and statistically significant all of these are. Awesome. Let's get going. Great. Okay. So um, I'm going to give us all, uh, we can do the drum roll as usual. Um, I'll start with just a quick overview of what the top seven will be. So we're going to be looking at a few trends that are if you've been a long-time listener or even a recent-time listener of the pod, you know um, that we covered, as Ron mentioned before, the top trends for the U.S. Um, so some of these trends are sister trends. Um, so the U.K. is seeing similar trending uh, concepts or motivations or ingredients to the U.S. Um, and that just goes to show that these are actually tied to more global phenomenon, or at least in the Western world, where we're seeing some kind of uh, macro trends that are reflected in both markets, which is pretty cool. So you'll see a little bit of similarities. Of course, the data is different. Um, and then you'll see some, some new ones as well. So we'll start with sustainability. So um, the rise of the niche motivation within sustainability, and we'll talk about what that means in a moment. So sustainable kind of drill downs. Um, we're going to be looking at regional cuisines in Asia, um, or so Asian regional cuisines, uh, you know, in the UK. Um, we're going to be looking at non-alcoholic beverages. We'll look at adaptogens and functional health. We'll look at floral um, as a flavor profile and as an aesthetic addition to dishes. We're going to be looking at what gourmet means in 2022, and we're going to be looking at foraging and foraged ingredients. So lots of really cool stuff here, um, and I'm excited to share with you. Are we going to go through uh, kind of what drove consumers to each one, um, and then how the trend itself is uh, is behaving. Sure. Yeah, that awesome. sounds good. Um, and I'll kind of throw in some fun facts here and there as well. And um, we probably won't get a chance to get too deep into these because I want to make sure that um, you know you're able to to get the full the full data package with you. Um, so feel free to check out again, as I said before, the report. But today we're going to do kind of a high level, I think. So we'll start with sustainability. Um, so my favorite topic of the moment, um, and of course, a very urgent one for all of us to be engaging with. Um, so as you all know, climate change, really big deal. Um, the food and beverage industry has a really big impact on our environment and the way that our climate is responding um, to those environmental changes. Um, and consumers are understanding that sustainability starts uh not necessarily starts, but definitely is engaging with what's on their plate, right? Um, so they're understanding that what they're eating and drinking, what they're choosing to bring home from the grocery store, what they're choosing to put on their plates, um, all of that has an impact on the environment. Um, and we're actually seeing that the majority today, the majority of conversations around sustainability um, in the UK are actually focused on product packaging. So what does that mean? Um, consumers are focused on things like recycling or food waste, right? The end of a product's life cycle, what the consumer does with it is how they perceive of sustainability right now. But we're actually seeing um, a really big increase in motivations that have to do with the whole life cycle of the product. So consumers are becoming um, more aware and more sophisticated in their understanding of sustainability and understanding that sustainability certainly does include what you do with something once you eat it, right? And um, once you dispose of its, let's say, its pa plastic packaging or, um, you know, transitioning to a plant-based packaging, whatever it is, right? It extends beyond that end of life moment for the product and actually has a lot to do, and if not more so to do, with the beginning of that product's life cycle. So how is it produced? 
where was it grown? Where was it raised? If we're thinking about livestock, right? How was it raised? Um, what is its carbon footprint? What does that have to do with, you know, its habitat or its farming practices? So as consumers are um, kind of increasing their knowledge or as knowledge becomes more available to them, um, we're seeing that they are making more and more decisions about the sustainability of their food and beverage practices based on not just end of life um, of the product, but actually the whole, the whole life cycle. So um, I'll show you what that actually means. Um, we're seeing that while the majority of social media conversations, which again is that proxy for consumer behavior and consumer perception, um, have to do with product packaging, those uh, those motivations, like I said, recycling or food waste packaging, et cetera, are actually on the decline. Um, whereas things that actually have to do with the production of products, um, like carbon footprint, habitat conservation, and regenerative farming, those are all on the rise. And we saw something similar in the U.S. as well. Um, so I'll give you a few of those numbers. Uh, carbon footprint is growing 17% in interest over the past year. Habitat conservation, about 30%. And regenerative farming at almost 50% year over year. So we're seeing pretty significant growth for these categories. Um, they are smaller in quantity than uh, you know, the product packaging claims like recycling, packaging, food waste, et cetera. Um, but I think they're really important to watch. Uh, and I think that this, for me, what's most interesting about this is that it ties to um, a broadening consumer perspective that an understanding that sustainability um, while personal one-on-one -on -one actions are important, and this is what we were kind of all raised on, right, was the mantra of don't litter, recycle, things like that. And um, while those matter, what's actually going to create sustainable change, which actually is going to create long-term change that we can rely on, um, is looking at the root, right? So um, yes, recycling matters, but looking back at how corporations and companies are actually producing their products um, and making their way to the market, that's where the real change has to happen in order to create significant change for our climate. Um, so I think this is really interesting because it focuses on consumer perception. Um, it focuses on, you know, new production methods that are going on um, right now in, in, our, in our industry. Um, and then these kind of more niche subcategories of sustainability and how consumers are relating to them. I think it's really interesting to look at trends like this uh, in relation to um, the fact that we know that us as consumers, all of us as consumers are becoming more educated about the things that we care about very specifically. Um, and we have developed a sense of how can we hold brands and products accountable um, for doing something about the things that, uh, that we care about. So if we care about sustainability, it is no longer enough for a brand to just claim um, some sort of either sustainable sourcing of their products or the ingredients that they used, but uh, either through certifications or through their marketing materials, they have to, to take it a step further and prove it as well. Um, and I think the other thing that this illustrates that across the board we've been seeing, not just locked to any specific region, is how specific uh, claims are becoming and how specific consumer needs are becoming. So if a few years ago, the thing that was on the rise was sustainability. Um, and it's interesting to take a look even at our own reports from uh, two, two and a half years ago when we were talking about sustainability and the things that we were seeing. Really what we were talking about was sustainability and you know functional health and these kind of high-level headlines. Um, and now with the further education of us as consumers and our growth, our evolution as consumers, uh, it has become so specific, the things that we talk about. It is no longer just sustainability. It is 
the sustainable sourcing of products, the specific ingredients and health that breaks down even further. It is anxiety relief, stress relief, gut health, brain health. It becomes very, very, very specific. And that can be misleading. That can be something that brands take a look at, a graph that just, so, that just shows, oh, people are not talking about sustainability as much as they used to. Usually that just means that they're just talking about it in a different way, which is why it's so important to be able to cross-reference multiple data sources and also understand the multiple ways that uh, that people can name one thing, right? That, that exactly. they can relate um, ingredient sourcing to sustainability, for example, even though they're different words. Right. And that's one of the really cool things that our technology does is it's able to understand that when someone is talking about, let's say, carbon footprint, that that is a, a sister term um, that's related to sustainability. Um, I want to quickly just comment on, on your point about accountability. Um, I think that's a really, really good one. And consumers are looking for brands to take accountability. And that's actually one of the ways that brands can encourage trust with their consumers. Um, and we've talked about this previously on podcast episodes, how big of a deal trust is right now. Um, and kind of finding ways to encourage your target consumers um, to build that trusting relationship with you. And one of the ways to do that is to demonstrate the accountability that you're taking for your impact on the climate. Um, so I think that accountability and trust are really woven together. Yeah. Um, so the next one we're going to look at is we're going to look at um, cuisines. So um, I mentioned before at the top of the pod that we're going to be looking at trends within Asian cuisines. Um, and you might be wondering, okay, why Asian cuisines? So Asian cuisines are actually, um, and this is a broad category, right? That includes an entire, you know, huge geographic region of the planet. Um, and we'll get more into the specifics in a second. But Asian cuisines as a whole um, are the most popular cuisine or constitute the most popular cuisine category in the UK. So when consumers are discussing some form of cuisine within those conversations, 40% of that uh, has to do with some Asian cuisine, which is pretty cool. So 40%, that's, you know, we're nearing half with that number um, mm -hmm. of cuisine discussion has to do with some form of Asian cuisine. Um, so there are lots of, you know, really well-established favorites there. Um, we're including Indian within Asian cuisine. Um, and we know that Indian cuisines are actually um, really important, uh, obviously, in India. Or Sorry, cut that part, Daniel. Um, we know that Asian cuisines um, are really well established, and we actually include uh, the category of Indian um, within that. And we know that Indian, has, uh, Indian cuisines have its own um, really important relationship uh, and, you know, long historical relationship within the UK. And there's lots of really interesting, you know, subcategories within Indian cuisine. So we can go into that another time. But today we're just looking at um, Asian cuisines generally. So we've included Indian as well, just because of its kind of geographic relationship. But um, we're also looking at things like Japanese and Chinese. So Indian, Japanese and Chinese take the top spots for, um, for Asian cuisines within the UK, which constitute 40% of that cuisine discussion. Um, however, we are seeing recent growth within regional Asian cuisines, um, and all of those um, we're actually placing, uh, you know, the Indian cuisines to the side for a moment, and we're seeing that Korean, Taiwanese, and Malaysian food actually um, take the top spots for the fastest growing regional Asian cuisines. So we're seeing Korean is growing at around a 48% rate uh, year over year, Taiwanese a 47, and Malaysian at 45. Um, so this is consumer interest in uh, each of these regional Asian cuisines. So those are the top trending cuisines within the Asian category. Um, each of those have their own unique relationship to uh, Chinese 
cuisine, cuisines, plural, generally. Um, there's a lot of historical influence there. That's really interesting. Um, and we can see that there's actually a, a really interesting combination or influence here, kind of where people are they're familiar with Chinese cuisines and they're willing to try something new, which feels uh, almost adjacent. Obviously, Korean, Taiwanese, and Malaysian are their own distinct, rich, beautiful um, cultural contributions. Um, but we're seeing that consumers are more willing to try something new when it is similar to something that they are already familiar with. And this is a great example of that. Um, so people are, you know, most willing to try something, let's say like a Korean dish because they are familiar with it, uh, with the concept of Asian cuisines elsewhere. So I think that's all I'm going to say about the matter on that. Ron, do you have any thoughts or feedback? Yeah, just that it's interesting that the fastest growing ones are, like none of them are what you would traditionally think of when someone talks about uh, Asian cuisine, um, which you said there are still like, the dominant ones, uh, like Japanese, for example. Um, but I just think it's beautiful to see that uh, that other cuisines are actually the ones that are gaining the more uh, traction more quickly. Um, do you know why that is? Like, do you know, for example, uh, why is Korean growing faster than Taiwanese? Is it uh, tied to like a specific consumer need or anything like that? Or is it uh, just seems to be the case? Like, this is what it is. That's a really interesting question. Um, I think right now it seems to be what it is. We've looked kind of into depth in all of these. Um, we're we're going to research it a little bit more to see, you know, what comes out of it. But I think right now, um, I think consumers are just trying new things and they're they're interested in checking out kind of regional variations. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's look at our third trend of uh, for twenty twenty two in the UK. We're going to be looking at alcohol free beverages. Um, so we know that this is something that. Uh, is exciting and has been going on over the course of even uh, 2021, right? Um, We know that consistently and constantly over the course of uh, the last year, people have been turning to alcohol-free beverages for a myriad of motivations. Um, Oftentimes those are housed within the functional foods or functional eating category, eating and drinking. Um, So people are looking for functional health benefits um, by reducing their alcohol intake, right? So some of that might be gut health, some of that might be stress relief, some of that might be mental health broadly. Um, so we're seeing that there is a, you know, a increase in um, the kind of waves that are happening in this, uh, if you'll excuse, I guess, the liquid pun there. I don't think it worked as well as I wanted. Um, <laughs> but we're seeing that alcohol-free beer, gin, and cocktails are already making those waves in the market. Um, and the next trend that we're expecting to see in 2022 are actually sparkling wines. Um, so sparkling wines are actually growing 10% year over year um, within the alcohol-free context, which is pretty cool. Um, And the top alcohol-free sparkling wines that we have identified are Prosecco, which already account for 51% of the conversation about non-alcoholic sparkling wines, um, and Champagne, which is about half of that at 27%. Um, And one of the main motivations that we're seeing, in addition to kind of the functional health um, categories, which have been already pretty well established in 2021, um, we're actually seeing occasion motivations coming to bear here. So, um, you know, why do folks turn to sparkling wines uh, maybe we can, I can ask you, Ron, like, why, why would you have a glass of Prosecco? Like, what, what would be the occasion for that? Uh, usually, I would say when it's like a special occasion kind of thing. Like, I don't see, exactly. yeah, I don't see myself just like kicking back with like a <laughs> glass of uh, sparkling wine versus just like exactly. wine. Exactly. 
Exactly. So, right, exactly. So the the kind of top penetrated categories of cocktail beer or gin, those very much might be your end of day relaxing. You know, you might whip up a a gin-based cocktail for kind of an after-dinner relaxing drink. You might have a beer with friends, whatever, right? Um, But sparkling wine is very much celebration focused. Um, And I think that as we enter into this new stage of the pandemic, and I know that we've deliberated over what to call it on previous podcast episodes, because we're not out of the pandemic, but we're not really at the beginning of the pandemic. So the best yeah. description I saw recently was still COVID, still dash COVID, <laughs> the name of, <laughs> of our current time frame. Um, but people are sort of adapting to how to celebrate, um, you know, occasions that they may have forewent uh, in, mm-hmm. in kind of previous iterations of the pandemic. So whether that's birthdays or, you know, graduations or proposals or whatever it is, right? Um, and finding ways to bring their functional needs to the table in those celebratory moments. Um, so that's why we're, I think we're seeing sparkling wines really come to bear, um, which is exciting because it shows that consumers are adapting and finding new ways to meet their me- needs while also, um, you know, being excited about the occasions that they're surrounded by. So how is that tied specifically to, to alcohol-free? So like, uh, so we said that uh, sparkling wine, great for a celebration, kind of well-known fact. Um, but right. now we're, we're tying it to like a bit of a different motivation, which is, uh, which is alcohol-free. Right. So alcohol-free iterations of sparkling wine are the trend to watch um, because we, we're seeing that alcohol-free matters. Um, it's you know one of the fastest rising uh, beverage trends generally. We know that cocktails, beer, and gin are already really well established in that category. Um, those are the top ones, IPAs especially within beer. Um, and we're seeing that sparkling wine is growing fa- like growing quickly within that context. So yeah. we're seeing that the next kind of port of call, if you will, within the alcohol-free trend is sparkling wine. And part of that is because of its association with celebrations. Right. I need at least like three more nautical puns. <laughs> <laughs> by the end yeah. of, of this podcast. Okay, um, <laughs> I, will, I will work on that. Um, um, I'm reading a book right now that has a lot to do with uh, the world of, of uh, you know, nautical yeah. wayfaring. So <laughs> maybe that's what's coming out. <laughs> um, so the main takeaway before we cast off and move to the next one. Uh, um, so the, the main takeaway here is that if you're working on a product, um, that is uh, an alcohol-free kind of line of products. Sparkling wine is the one to watch. Um, that's really interesting. I mean, there all of these trends that really reflect um, kind of people's state of mind, like people are looking for more reasons to celebrate, to, to get together, is uh, just so fascinating to me. And I guess making it alcohol-free makes it uh, appropriate in, uh, in more occasions. Um, the way I've heard it described to what you said earlier about still COVID is that this is like season 13 of a show where it's like, it's kind of like still (laughs) the same. It's the same (laughs) storylines. It's just like, you've seen it, you, you're still watching, but it's just like, you're kind of done with it. (laughs) Right. I saw something that said, uh, we really thought we were in for like a stranger thing, stranger things moment where we'd have just like a few seasons, but we found ourselves in a Grey's Anatomy, uh, (laughs) moment where we're, you know. Many seasons in unexpectedly. Um, Yeah, I I feel that. Um, Okay, so if we're looking at our next trend, we're also going to continue kind of within the realm of um, beverages, either alcoholic or non. Um, And we're going to take a look at craft beverages. So foraged herbs and flowers are actually uh, the trend to watch. um, And those add specific freshness to craft beverages. Um, So we're seeing that for... Sorry, I just bumped it. (laughs) We're seeing that foraged ingredients um, are actually capturing consumer imagination and alcoholic beverages increasingly so, and those are growing at 17% year over year in the UK. 
Um, and specifically, we're looking at foraged botanicals as well as other forms, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, and we're seeing that brands uh, and consumers both are actually really relying on distinct local flavors. Um, so there's this, this association between foraged and local. That makes sense, right? Um, foraged for those of you who might be unfamiliar with the term in a food and beverage context means, uh, you know, ingredients that you um, are able to, uh, you're not producing on a mass scale. You're not, you know, you're producing small batched, small batch foraged ingredients. You're finding them out in the wild and you're not, you know, farming them. You're bringing them into your product um, from local areas. And we're seeing a lot of applications uh, in gourmet and craft beverages. So I know I just threw a lot of adjectives out at you, uh, but the big takeaway here is that foraged herbs and flavors, um, specifically for their local uh, kind of association, are being used in beverages um, and especially are valued for their gourmet um, and craft identities. So I have a question about this that might be a very stupid question. Um, when you it. say when you say foraged uh, herbs and flowers, um, do you mean like the ingredients themselves, they are perceived to be foraged and people are looking for them as ingredients in like a dish or a product? Or do you mean hmm. actually that it is part of the activity of foraging? Like people go out and pick mushrooms, right? Hmm. Um, so Interesting distinction. We're actually seeing that the majority of the buzz around foraged ingredients are actually as a part of... Um, brands that make that claim themselves. So for example, a gin that focuses on, which is a big deal in the UK, um, we're seeing lots of gins that focus on foraged ingredients and claim that as such on their packaging. And as a result, consumers are excited about it and discussing it um, when they are talking about what they're drinking. Um, so that's kind of the large share. But we're also seeing that some folks are actually taking it upon themselves um, going out into nature and finding ingredients that they want to add um, based on you know recipes that they're finding or influencers or even trying to replicate uh, you know brands that they're that they're loving. Um, so a few examples that I can give. Uh, so for example, just to kind of make it concrete, um, a foraged ingredient might be elderflower that's used by Brew Yonder, which is a, um, a beer company um, who uses elderflower in an IPA. Um, we know that mint, foraged mint, has been used in botanist gin. Um, Rosehip has been used by Slow Motion, which is also gin. Um, and specifically comments on uh, kind of the connection to the British countryside. So that local motivation that I that I mentioned before, um, that there's a real investment in these foraged ingredients reflecting where uh, the, the product actually came from, which is pretty cool. Um, so as we're seeing an increase in interest in local, we're also seeing an increase in interest in uh, foraged ingredients, wild food, et cetera. Um, and what that means for beverages, especially so in the ingredients. Context. So ingredients that are kind of local to a certain place um, will kind of um, it will help like localize that product to something you know from from that area. So I'll just add right. to the list of things that a guy who works for a food tech company probably should have known. Forged sure. ingredients. I guess it's things that like don't translate that well into into Hebrew that I'm kind of like translating Maybe, yeah. in my head. But um, so like foraged herbs or foraged ingredients would be more kind of a category of ingredients um, that are that are exactly more, yeah. It's the sourcing. That's what yeah. forage has to do about right. It's the sourcing. Yeah. Um, so an example of that. Let's try to make this even a little bit more concrete uh, with mm -hmm. some more data. So. Um, the rate at which people talk about botanicals in a foraged context for alcoholic drinks is actually 65 times higher than they would talk about botanicals in general food and beverage. You mm -hmm. see? So there's yeah. actually a really big correlation between botanics and 
for like foraging in alcoholic contexts, um, if that gives you a little bit of a sense. So it's it's the sourcing and the application that makes something foraged, um, yep. which is pretty cool. And there's that connection to wild and to the natural element. Um, so I hope that's clear, but definitely a lot of really interesting stuff happening, especially uh, at the brand level for alcoholic uh, beverages. Now I'm just wondering if uh, everybody listening will be like, yeah, I mean, dummy, of course it's like foraged in- <laughs> ingredients. Or No, but, it, but you're right that it is a little bit more complicated. At least one person out there listening will be like, well, thank you for that explanation. <laughs> now right. I know what foraged No, but, I, but it's important because we don't want people to walk away from this being, oh, well then I should make a recipe and I should ask all of the people who are preparing this recipe to like, you know, take a hike to their local park and pick out some mushrooms and include, right? That's not feasible for the majority of folks. Um, yeah. So I think the application here and your question reflected this is uh, more on like the, you know, the the messaging and the inclusion for it's the uh, It's experiential right. eating, Miriam. <laughs> Just, you know. <laughs> yep, 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 exactly. Um, okay, speaking right. of another um, pretty cool category that I just gave the mushroom example and guess what's up next? adaptogens, um, which is my other favorite trend. I feel like I say that about everything. I'm like, guys, this is my favorite trend. And I say that about each of them. (laughs) (laughs) This is the one. This This is is it. it. Um, So adaptogens are actually the next trend we're going to look at. And we're uh, we're coming to a close. We have two more after this. So adaptogens will offer medicinal and functional benefits um, in 2022. We we already know that adaptogens, um, if you've listened to last week's podcast, are um, nutritional uh, nutritionally based ingredients that provide the body um, the building blocks for what it needs to respond to stress or adapt to stress in a healthier and stronger way. So um, oftentimes adaptogens are found in things like mushrooms, so reishi, lion's mane, etc. Um, so adaptogens are actually emerging in the UK in home cooking, and we're seeing an eight percent increase in recipes year over year, um, as well as a seventeen percent increase in restaurants over the past year. So specifically within home cooking and within restaurant use, we're seeing adaptogens show up more and more. Um, and the association with medicinal properties is actually up 50% year over year, um, as well as associations with things like stress relief and brain function. So those are, uh, you know, top categories for adaptogens. Adaptogens are, are scientifically known for, um, or I don't want to make that claim. They are nutritionally perceived of as having stress relief and brain function, um, impacts. I want to clarify for our listeners that we're not making any sort of scientific claim here. When we're talking about these things, we're talking about consumer perception, which is really important. Um, and we're seeing that functional benefits, like I mentioned, such as stress relief are up 25% year over year, um, whereas brain function is up 22%. Um, and finally, I want to offer that uh, the leading adaptogens actually come from the world of fungi. So we're seeing reishi, ganoderma, cordyceps, chaga, and lion's mane are actually actually taking the top spots for um for growth in, in leading adaptogens. Um, and an example of that actually comes from the world of beverages. So um, we just spoke about beverages, um, but we're talking about them yet again, um, this time not in the alcoholic context, but we're seeing that adaptogens um, in coffees and in teas are showing up. So an example might be, you know, an ashwagandha latte or, uh, you know, a, re- a reishi-based, um, you know, morning milk, things like that. So essentially, um, adaptogens are um, being increasingly associated with medicinal properties, um, which makes sense given their nutritional elements, um, with particular emphasis on functional health benefits like stress relief and brain function. So stress relief and brain brain function are both up in terms of consumer association with adaptogens at about 25% year over year, um, give or take. 
And the leading adaptions that we see are actually from the world of fungi. So we're seeing reishi, ganoderma, cordyceps, chaga, and lion's mane are all having the top spot. So um, a functional you know, example um, of what that actually looks like is, let's say, an ashwagandha latte. Or um, you know, if we're thinking about those uh, fungi examples, um, a reishi morning milk, something like that, right? So um, make sure if you're creating a product and you're marketing it um, and you have one of these adaptogenic ingredients, really call out uh, its functionality and, and what it can do for you. Um, in the packaging because consumers are responding to it more and more, especially in home cooking and in restaurant menus. So if you're putting together a restaurant menu, why not call it the, you know, the impact of having a, uh, a mushroom dish. And if you're using, you know, lion's mane, let's say, um, include that. Or if you're creating a recipe, uh, feel free to include these claims as well. Adaptogens is one of those things that we've been seeing across the board in, um, uh, in other uh, markets as well, right? Because we've been seeing this in uh, in the U.S. data as well, and we've also been seeing it for a while because of how it's uh, related to um, to things like uh, stress relief and a lot of things that are very very directly rooted from the pandemic um, itself. And we've also we've also <laughs> been seeing it in Miriam's pantry for the yeah. great taste wise mystery of 2021, um, which happened right at the kind of the turn of the new year, um, when I got you know a big uh, gift basket of a gift basket of adaptogenic ingredients um, and couldn't figure out who it came from. But we solved that mystery. That was a that was spoiler. interesting. Yeah, it, <laughs> spoiler. It, it was us. not my team. <laughs> it wasn't us. Yeah, it was like Miriam was like, "Oh, thank you guys for for this amazing." And and we were like, "I was asking everybody, is this us?" It's like it's not. I don't know. <laughs> so funny, um, but yeah, definitely. I've been trying it myself, and I um, we've talked about this in every kind of podcast episode. But um, we love to try the things that we talk about, and this is one of the ones that uh, I personally have really enjoyed getting to experience. Yeah, I think uh, one of the main takeaways here for um, when you're putting together menus or when you're putting together marketing materials for your products is it's really, really important. It sounds obvious, but it's really, really important to call out the specific um, impacts that a certain ingredient uh, in a dish or in a product could have. Um, because many, many times that's what we'll be looking for and that is going to be our our driver and our need. It's exactly the same difference like uh, looking up, um, you know, an easy lunch for toddlers or easy and healthy lunch for toddlers, right? That's exactly the difference. If you'll see both of these titles, you will gravitate more towards one of them. And this is just a very simple example. But if you are educated about a certain space, you will be looking for uh, either the impact that adaptogens have in this specific example, or just the fact that they are being used. Right. So, um, so of course, with it being validated, uh, call out those impacts. Awesome. All right. We have just enough time for our last two trends. Uh, so the first is about florals. So we also covered florals in the U S. Um, so you can listen to last week's podcast if you're interested in kind of the deeper dive into the aesthetics behind them. Um, but in the UK specifically, uh, we're looking at florals because they add what we're calling sensory intrigue uh, to dishes and drinks, so both to food and beverage. Um, so we'll get to what that means in just a moment. But flavor fl- floral floral flavor profiles, try saying that 10 times fast, floral flavor profiles are actually growing 41% um, over the past year in consumer interest. Uh, and we're, we're seeing that that rapid growth is in fact to that concept, uh, due to that concept that I just mentioned. Uh, so unique sensory experiences. So um, what does this have to do with anything? Um, the the idea of during COVID, right? Um, our We talked about this also, um, I think two podcast episodes ago, when people have developed uh, new kind of coping mechanisms for the monotony of COVID. Um, 
Um, and a lot of that has taken place in the kitchen. So whether that means developing new, uh, you know, cooking skills or baking skills or whatever, right? But that also extends to using new types of ingredients, which can offer that sensory um, kind of boost, right? Um, if you're creating something at home and you're able to add some edible flowers to it, that makes it all the more special and all the more, uh, you know, visually appealing and something that you can, um, you know, share with your friends, let's say on social media, but also something that uh, just kind of brings a little bit of that spark back to the kitchen. So um, the top edible flowers that actually provide that floral taste um, include cherry blossoms. So we're looking at um, 32% year-over-year growth for cherry blossoms. So an example of that might be, uh, you know, a cherry blossom cake, um, which includes that as, uh, you know, the aesthetic addition at the top, but also brings that really special floral taste. Um, elderflower, um, which is a sweet perfumed flower, which is growing 10% year over year. Um, I believe that Harry and Meghan's, uh, back in the day, their wedding cake was elderflower uh, flavored. So um, this is something that has been on the scene in the UK. And we definitely saw a boost during those couple of months afterwards in elderflower popularity, but we're seeing it again rising uh, 10% year over year. Um, and finally, orange blossom, which is, again, also really fragrant, very flavorful, um, often used in baked goods that's growing 14% year over year. So these edible flowers that we're talking about um, bring that floral, not only are they, can they be aesthetically interesting, like cherry blossom, but they also bring that floral taste. Finally, wait, I want to make one more claim, one more uh, note about this. So uh, the top associated, uh, when we said, you know, sensory experience. So what are the top associated experiential claims for florals? Um, we're seeing attractive, aroma, refreshing, unique, and creative. So that just goes to show that, you know, creativity, uniqueness, um, the visual element, all of those things really matter to folks when they're using florals in their eating and drinking. If we were uh, those types of marketers, we would title this as, what does the surge in popularity of elderflower mean for Harry and Meghan? And then the answer would be nothing, nothing at all. Right. Here's like something so, completely unrelated. Plot twist. <laughs> we might be those kind of marketers. We might not, but <laughs> we also might be. <laughs> um, just kidding. Yeah. Um, okay. Finally, um, let's think about gourmet, which was the, the final of our seven that we kind of talked about at the top of the pod. And um, this is, again, one of my favorite trends. I should just preface all of these with that, but I actually really think this one is interesting. So gourmet food and beverage, right? What do we, I'll ask you, Ron, what do we typically think of when we think of gourmet food and beverage? Like what would prompt you to describe something as gourmet? Um, I would say either uh, the the setting in which I'm uh, I'm eating it. So okay. um, where whether it's like a, some sort of a fancy restaurant or like a, a very special type of occasion. Um, but I think that there are also... Uh, very specific foods that I would associate with it, like, um, you know, things like whether it's like truffles or uh, a very expensive piece of steak or things, uh, things like that, like the style of, um, of the mm. meal. Um, probably that's where I would go to. So style, ingredient, price, and location slash experience. Is what I I'm hate that say. price is, is part of it, but yeah, I mean, but it is right. Yeah. Like yeah. you're, you're investing in the experience, right. And you want to see that reflected in what you're actually consuming. Yeah. Um, so yeah, exactly. So that's what we're seeing that consumers also are, uh, this was not a planted question and answer session. <laughs> that was actually just organic. Um, so absolutely. Um, and gourmet we're seeing is primarily associated with those things. Um, and especially ingredient quality. Um, and we're actually seeing that now gourmet is actually increasingly associated with sustainability as well as quality. So um, the realm of gourmet is actually uh, starting to include environmental impact in a much bigger way in the UK than it was previously. 
Um, so sustainability is actually rising 28% year over year within the context of gourmet. So when folks are going out uh, or even creating something at home, right, that they're considering to be gourmet, um, they're excited about it, they're talking about it, and they're also, um, you know, at a rate 28% higher than last year, discussing um, its environmental impact. Um, there's a couple reasons for that. Uh, one of the ones, again, talking about price, uh, sustain that unfortunately right now, sustainable practices often push prices up. I know that that's something that a lot of folks in the industry are working on to make sustainable food and beverage more accessible. Um, but as sustainable ingredients tend to, at this moment, hold uh, higher price ranges, they also hold higher relevance for the premium sector, right? So mm-hmm. we're seeing that. Um, but we're also seeing that folks are uh, not willing to sacrifice their ethics and values at the door. Right. So when they're going into a gourmet experience, they want to know um, that what they're consuming reflects the, the values that they hold in their day to day life. Um, and we're seeing that a lot of chefs and a lot of uh, you know, major restaurants are actually um, taking care to incorporate that as part of the uh, values and ethics of the restaurant itself. Um, mm-hmm. So whether that's let's think back to that previous trend of foraged, right, like sourcing ingredients in a much more climate friendly way that emphasizes local ingredients. Right. That's one of the ways to do it. Um, and we're seeing a lot of uh, association between that and um and gourmet. So I'll give you a few numbers. Um, We're seeing that chocolate and coffee are actually key ingredients in this discussion. That makes sense. Those are two of the kind of um, original uh, gourmet ingredient categories that have seen a lot of growth and action around sustainability and also fair trade and labor and all that good stuff. Those account for 7% um, of the conversations around gourmet sustainable ingredients. Um, And particularly, as I said before, linked to fair trade. Um, and we're also seeing that regenerative farming methods are gaining momentum. So that's true for um, especially protein-heavy gourmet meals, right? Um, like steak or other expensive meat cuts. Um, so yeah, definitely interesting to watch. Um, we're seeing that you know carbon footprint and regenerative farming, those sustainability, this is actually a nice bookend uh, now that we think about it. The sustainability claims we talked about at the top of the pod are showing up um, pretty heavily here in gourmet. We're seeing a, around a 70% increase year over year an interest in carbon footprint within gourmet settings. Um, so definitely a lot to work with here. And I think it's a really interesting trend to watch. Yeah, I think it's uh, another example of how specific sustainability has gotten. Um, yeah. Even though here it's uh, it's not, it's more, the, the trend we're looking at is within gourmet, not like within sustainability, but um, but sustainability is playing such a an important and um such an impactful role in everything we eat. Uh, something that we've been talking a lot about lately is that we believe that over the next 10 years, almost everything that we eat and the way that we produce it is going to transform right. in some way. Um, and we believe that because we're seeing trends, for example, like this, where it, it the the meaning of what it means for something uh, to be gourmet, like the way we perceive gourmet is changing because right. sustainability was not part uh, of, you know, the definition of what is a gourmet meal um, 10 years ago or five years ago, right? How right. was it sourced? Where is it from? Um, exactly. How each ingredient is, is being perceived. Um, so there are so many of these trends that support um, the demands that uh, we see from consumers that really indicate that there's going to be a massive change in everything that we eat and the way that companies are driven to to make these things, which is why it's so important to get as close as possible to the consumer and really understand which direction they're driving the market because it really is the consumers um, telling us every single day everything that they're looking for 
we know what their needs and motivations are. And then it becomes about how do we match those with both the manufacturing methods, the ingredients that we use, the marketing that we put together, um, and the products that we take to market. Right. That's exactly it. That the building blocks of that change will be the dynamism and uh, the kind of sophistication of consumers, right? Um, and I say sophistication not in any sort of like value judgment way, right? What I mean by that is that consumers are becoming um, better educated about uh, kind of what's available to them and what they want. Um, but also consumers are really complex. Um, they have lots of different competing needs, right? Like you, somebody could want a gourmet meal that is also sustainable and they're not willing to sacrifice either of those things, right? Or someone might be really interested in having a gut health drink that also provides energy, that also is gluten-free, that also is great for their keto diet, right? So the brands that can adapt to that and understand that faster and create products that meet those needs or create, you know, recipes that meet those needs or restaurants that can provide menu items that meet those needs, whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, being able to be agile by understanding the dynamism of, of consumers as they grow and change is the key to the success, I think, moving forward. Awesome. So thank you so much for putting this together. I do want to mention that um, a lot of the research here, all of the research here was done through TasteWise, um, our AI platform that takes a look at billions of data points and combines them into actionable insights that uh, you can use to inform your uh, product development and um, uh, marketing and uh, in food service sales. Uh, there is a free edition that you can use. It's called uh, TasteWise Starter. Uh, that you can get on uh, tastewise.io. It's completely free. It uh, uh, comprises of a top top trends report that you can use to get an overview of what's trending right now in food and beverage, but also, and more importantly, the spotlight report, which you can use to put in any of the phrases and terms that we used uh, during today's uh, presentation or um, any of the other podcasts or, or content that we put together. And you can produce your own reports. So if you're interested in sustainability or in coffee or in regenerative uh, farming or, you know, um, uh, cherry blossoms, I'm just going through the the slides here for the uh, this UK <laughs> report. Um, yeah. But uh, if you're interested in any of these things, you can just pop it into um, the spotlight report and you'll get kind of an aggregate of um, how that trend has been behaving. Um, We really want to make sure it's useful for you and uh, as you're kind of planning out the rest of the year that you have the resources that you need. So the last thing I'll mention is that every Tuesday, um, we also do TasteWise Live, which is a live research session where we use our own platform just to dig into the things that you're interested in. So if there's anything you'd like to see covered there, just uh, send us a note at live at tastewise.io. And you can also use that address for, you know, if you just want to chat with uh, me and Miriam about uh, whatever. Um, (laughs) Wait, I also want to note before we close out um, that this was specific data for the UK. We also have a predictions report for the US. Um, If you're interested in anything UK, we're actually, this week is UK week. So we just did a live on uh, UK trends. Um, I believe this week was on tea flavor trends. And we've got a lot going on. So if you have any UK-based questions, now's the time to get them in and we would love to discuss them with you. Um, If you are interested in another market, definitely shoot us a note because we have some um, exciting changes and things going on coming up. So we'd love to keep you in the loop. So uh, definitely stay abreast of that. Ahoy matey, abreast (laughs) of that. Like is also a nautical term. <laughs> That's a good way to close this out. Uh, the Food yep. Intelligence Podcast <laughs> is produced by Ophir Nagar and edited by Daniel Gall. All of the content and research uh, is put together by Miriam. Here with me. Thank you so much, Miriam. Um, and Naomi said, and Mirav. And Naomi and Mirav, who put together a lot of their research here. 
Uh, my name is Ron. And uh, yeah, I think I've been rambling for enough. So I hope it's been useful for everybody and we'll see you on the next one. See you later. Thank you.